Chapter 4, Part 4 of Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, Volume 1, by Charles Mackay. The Alchemist, Part 4. Trithemius. The name of this eminent man has become famous in the annals of alchemy, although he did but little to gain so questionable an honour. He was born in the year 1462, at the village of Tritheme, in the electorate of Treves. His father was John Heidenberg, a vine-grower in easy circumstances, who, dying when his son was but seven years old, left him to the care of his mother. The latter married again very shortly afterwards, and neglected the poor boy the offspring of her first marriage. At the age of fifteen he did not even know his letters, and was besides half-starved and otherwise ill-treated by his stepfather. But the love of knowledge germinated in the breast of the unfortunate youth, and he learned to read at the house of a neighbour. His father-in-law set him to work in the vineyards, and thus occupied all his days. But the nights were his own. He often stole out unheeded when all the household were fast asleep, poring over his studies in the fields, by the light of the moon, and thus taught himself Latin and the rudiments of Greek. He was subjected to so much ill-usage at home, in consequence of this love of study, that he determined to leave it. Demanding the patrimony which his father had left him, he proceeded to Treves, and assuming the name of Trithemius, from that of his native village of Tritheme, lived there for some months under the tuition of eminent masters, by whom he was prepared for the university. At the age of twenty, he took it into his head that he should like to see his mother once more, and he set out on foot from the distant university for that purpose. On his arrival near Spanheim, late in the evening of a gloomy winter's day, it came on to snow so thickly that he could not proceed onwards to the town. He therefore took refuge for the night in a neighbouring monastery, but the storm continued several days the roads became impassable, and the hospitable monks would not hear of his departure. He was so pleased with them and their manner of life, that he suddenly resolved to fix his abode among them, and renounce the world. They were no less pleased with him, and gladly received him as a brother. In the course of two years, although still so young, he was unanimously elected their abbot. The financial affairs of the establishment had been greatly neglected, the walls of the building were falling into ruin, and everything was in disorder. Trithemius, by his good management and regularity, introduced a reform in every branch of expenditure. The monastery was repaired, and a yearly surplus, instead of a deficiency, rewarded him for his pains. He did not like to see the monks idle, or occupied solely between prayers for their business and chess for their relaxation. He therefore set them to work to copy the writings of eminent authors. They laboured so assiduously that in the course of a few years their library, which had contained only about forty volumes, was enriched with several hundred valuable manuscripts, comprising many of the classical Latin authors, besides the works of the early fathers and the principal historians and philosophers of more modern date. He retained the dignity of Abbot of Spanheim for twenty-one years, when the monks, tired of the severe discipline he maintained, revolted against him, and chose another abbot in his place. 
He was afterwards made abbot of St. James in Warsburg, where he died in 1516. During his learned leisure at Spanheim, he wrote several works upon the occult sciences, the chief of which are an essay on geomancy, or divinations by means of lines and circles on the ground, another upon sorcery, the third upon alchemy, and a fourth upon the government of the world by its presiding angels, which was translated into English and published by the famous William Lilly in 1647. It has been alleged by the believers in the possibility of transmutation that the prosperity of the Abbey of Spanheim, while under his superintendence, was owing more to the philosopher's stone than to wise economy. Trithemius, in common with many other learned men, has been accused of magic, and a marvellous story is told of his having raised from the grave the form of Mary of Burgundy at the intercession of her widowed husband, the Emperor Maximilian. His work on steganographia, or cabalistic writing, was denounced to the Count Palatine, Frederick II, as magical and devilish, and it was by him taken from the shelves of his library and thrown into the fire. Trithemius is said to be the first writer who makes mention of the wonderful story of the devil and Dr. Faustus, the truth of which he firmly believed. He also recounts the freaks of a spirit named Hoodkin, by whom he was at times tormented. The Maréchal de Ray one of the greatest encouragers of alchemy in the 15th century was Gilles de Laval, Lord of Ray and a Marshal of France. His name and deeds are little known, but in the annals of crime and folly they might claim the highest and worst preeminence. Fiction has never invented anything wilder or more horrible than his career, and were not the details but too well authenticated by legal and other documents which admit no doubt, the lover of romance might easily imagine they were drawn to please him from the stores of the prolific brain, and not from the page of history. He was born about the year 1420, of one of the noblest families of Brittany. His father dying when Gilles had attained his twentieth year, he came into uncontrolled possession, at that early age, of a fortune which the monarchs of France might have envied him. He was a near kinsman of the Montmorencys, the Roncys, and the Creons, possessed fifteen princely domains, and had an annual revenue of about 300,000 livres. Besides this, he was handsome, learned, and brave. He distinguished himself greatly in the wars of Charles VII, and was rewarded by that monarch with the dignity of a marshal of France. But he was extravagant and magnificent in his style of living and accustomed from his earliest years to the gratification of every wish and passion, and this, at last, led him from vice to vice, and from crime to crime, till a blacker name than his is not to be found in any record of human iniquity. In his castle of Champtochet, he lived with all the splendour of an eastern caliph. He kept up a troop of two hundred horsemen to accompany him wherever he went, and his excursions for the purposes of hawking and hunting, were the wonder of all the country around. So magnificent were the caparisons of his steeds and the dresses of his retainers. Day and night his castle was open all the year round to comers of every degree. He made it a rule to regale even the poorest beggar with wine and hippocras. 
Every day an ox was roasted whole in his spacious kitchens, besides sheep, pigs, and poultry sufficient to feed five hundred persons. He was equally magnificent in his devotions. His private chapel at champ was the most beautiful in France, and far surpassed any of those in the richly endowed cathedrals of Notre-Dame in Paris, of Amiens, of Bouvard, or of Rouen. It was hung with cloth of gold and rich velvet. All the chandeliers were of pure gold, curiously inlaid with silver. The great crucifix over the altar was of solid silver, and the chalices and incense burners were of pure gold. He had besides a fine organ, which he caused to be carried from one castle to another on the shoulders of six men, whenever he changed his residence. He kept up a choir of twenty-five young children of both sexes, who were instructed in singing by the first musicians of the day. The master of his chapel he called a bishop, who had under him his deans, archdeacons, and vicars, each receiving great salaries, the bishop four hundred crowns a year, and the rest in proportion. He also maintained a whole troop of players, including ten dancing girls, and as many ballad singers, besides morris dancers, jugglers, and montebanks of every description. The theatre on which they performed was fitted up without any regard to expense, and they played mysteries or danced the morris dance every evening for the amusement of himself and household, and such strangers as were sharing his prodigal hospitality. At the age of twenty-three he married Catherine, the wealthy heiress of the House of Tours, for whom he refurbished his castle at an expense of a hundred thousand crowns. His marriage was the signal for new extravagance, and he launched out more madly than ever he had done before, sending for fine singers or celebrated dancers from foreign countries to amuse him and his spouse, and instituting tilts and tournaments in his great courtyard almost every week for all the knights and nobles of the province of Brittany. The Duke of Brittany's court was not half so splendid as that of the Maréchal de Ray. His utter disregard for wealth was so well known that he was made to pay three times its value for everything he purchased. His castle was filled with needy parasites and panderers to his pleasures, amongst whom he lavished rewards with an unsparing hand but the ordinary round of sensual gratification ceased at last to afford him delight. He was observed to be more absentious in the pleasures of the table and to neglect the beauteous dancing girls who used formerly to occupy so much of his attention. He was sometimes gloomy and reserved, and there was an unnatural wildness in his eye which gave indications of insipid madness. Still, his discourse was as reasonable as ever, his urbanity to the guests that flocked from far and near to champ suffered no diminution, and learned priests, when they conversed with him, thought to themselves that few of the nobles of France were so well informed as Gilles de Laval. But dark rumours spread gradually over the country. Murder, and if possible, still more atrocious deeds were hinted at, and it was remarked that many young children of both sexes suddenly disappeared and were never afterwards heard of. One or two had been traced to the castle of champ and had never been seen to leave it, but no one dared to accuse openly so powerful a man as the Maréchal de Ray. Whenever the subject of the lost children was mentioned in his presence, he manifested the greatest astonishment at the mystery which involved their fate, 
and indignation against those who might be guilty of kidnapping them. Still, the world was not wholly deceived. His name became as formidable to young children as that of the devouring ogre in fairy tales, and they were taught to go miles round rather than pass under the turrets of Champtoche. In the course of a few years, the reckless extravagance of the marshal drained him of all his funds, and he was obliged to put up some of his estates for sale. The Duke of Brittany entered into a treaty with him for the valuable seniority of Ingrand, but the heirs of Gilles implored the interference of Charles VII to stay the sale. Charles immediately issued an edict, which was confirmed by the provincial parliament of Brittany, forbidding him to alienate his paternal estates. Gilles had no alternative but to submit. He had nothing to support his extravagance, but his allowance as a marshal of France, which did not cover the one-tenth of his expenses. A man of his habits and character could not retrench his wasteful expenditure and live reasonably. He could not dismiss without a pang his horsemen, his jesters, his morris dancers, his choristers and his parasites, or confine his hospitality to those who really needed it. Notwithstanding his diminished resources, he resolved to live as he had lived before, and turn alchemist, that he might make gold out of iron, and be still the wealthiest and most magnificent among the nobles of Brittany. In pursuance of this determination, he sent to Paris, Italy, Germany and Spain, inviting all the adepts in the science to visit him at champ The messengers he dispatched on this mission were two of his most needy and unprincipled dependents, Gilles de Sillet and Roger de Briefel. The latter, the obsequious panderer to his most secret and abominable pleasures, he had entrusted with the education of his motherless daughter, a child but five years of age, with permission that he might marry her at the proper time to any person he choose, or to himself if he liked it better. This man entered into the new plans of his master with great zeal, and introduced him to one prolati, an alchemist of Padua, and a physician of Poitia, who was addicted to the same pursuits. The marshal caused a splendid laboratory to be fitted up for them, and the three commenced the search for the philosopher's stone. They were soon afterwards joined by another pretended philosopher, named Anthony Palermo, who aided in their operations for upwards of a year. They all fared sumptuously at the marshal's expense, draining him of the ready money he possessed, and leading him on from day to day, with the hope that they would succeed in the object of their search. From time to time new aspirants from the remotest parts of Europe arrived at his castle, and for months he had upwards of twenty alchemists at work, trying to transmute copper into gold, and wasting the gold, which was still his own, in drugs and elixirs. But the Lord of Ray was not a man to abide patiently their lingering processes. Pleased with their comfortable quarters, they jogged on from day to day, and would have done so for years had they been permitted. But he suddenly dismissed them all, with the exception of the Italian prolati and the physician of Poitia. These he retained to aid him to discover the secret of the philosopher's stone by a bolder method. The Poitiesan had persuaded him that the devil was the great depository of that and all other secrets, and that he would raise him before Gilles, who might enter into any contract he pleased with him. Gilles expressed his readiness and promised to give the devil anything but his soul, or do any deed that the arch-enemy might impose upon him. 
Attended solely by the physician, he proceeded at midnight to a wild-looking place in a neighbouring forest. The physician drew a magic circle around them on the sward, and muttered for half an hour an invocation to the evil spirit to arise at his bidding, and disclose the secrets of alchemy. Gilles looked on with intense interest, and expected every moment to see the earth open, and deliver to his gaze the great enemy of mankind. At last the eyes of the physician became fixed, his hair stood on end, and he spoke, as if addressing the fiend. But Gilles saw nothing except his companion. At last the physician fell down on the sward as if insensible. Gilles looked calmly on to see the end. After a few minutes the physician arose, and asked him if he had not seen how angry the devil looked. Gilles replied that he had seen nothing upon which his companion informed him that Balzabub had appeared in the form of a wild leopard, growled at him savagely, and said nothing, and that the reason why the marshal had neither seen nor heard him was that he hesitated in his own mind as to devoting himself entirely to the service. Deray owed that he had indeed misgivings, and inquired what was to be done to make the devil speak out and unfold his secret. The physician replied that some person must go to Spain and Africa to collect certain herbs which only grew in those countries, and offered to go himself, if Deray would provide the necessary funds. Deray at once consented, and the physician set out on the following day with all the gold that his dupe could spare him. The marshal never saw his face again. But the eager lord de Champtochet could not rest. Gold was necessary for his pleasures and unless by supernatural aid, he had no means of procuring any further supplies. The physician was hardly twenty leagues on his journey, before Gilles resolved to make another effort, to force the devil to divulge the art of gold-making. He went out alone for that purpose, but all his conjurations were of no effect. Balzabub was obstinate, and would not appear. Determined to conquer him if he could, he unbosomed himself to the Italian alchemist, Prelati. The latter offered to undertake the business, upon condition that de Rays did not interfere in the conjurations, and consented besides to furnish him with all the charms and talismans that might be required. He was further to open a vein in his arm, and sign with his blood, a contract that he would work the devil's will in all things, and offer up to him the sacrifice of the heart, lungs, hands, eyes, and blood of a young child. The grasping monomaniac made no hesitation, but agreed at once to the disgusting terms proposed to him. On the following night, Prelati went out alone, and after having been absent for three or four hours, returned to Gilles, who sat anxiously awaiting him. Prelati then informed him that he had seen the devil in the shape of a handsome youth of twenty. He further said, that the devil desired to be called barren in all future invocations, and had shown him a great number of ingots of pure gold, buried under a large oak in the neighbouring forest, all of which, and as many more as he desired, should become the property of the Maréchal de Ray, if he remained firm, and broke no condition of the contract. Prelati further showed him a small casket of black dust, which would turn iron into gold, but as the process was very troublesome, he advised that they should be contented with the ingots they found under the oak tree, 
and which would more than supply all the wants that the most extravagant imagination could desire. They were not, however, to attempt to look for the gold till a period of seven times seven weeks, or they would find nothing but slates and stones for their pains. Gilles expressed the utmost chagrin and disappointment, and at once said that he could not wait for so long a period. If the devil were not more prompt, Prelati might tell him that the Maréchal de Ray was not to be trifled with, and would decline all further communication with him. Prelati at last persuaded him to wait seven times seven days. They then went at midnight with picks and shovels to dig up the ground under the oak, where they found nothing to reward them but a great quantity of slates marked with hieroglyphics. It was now Prelati's turn to be angry, and he loudly swore that the devil was nothing but a liar and a cheat. The marshal joined cordially in the opinion, but was easily persuaded by the cunning Italian to make one more trial. He promised at the same time that he would endeavour on the following night to discover the reason why the devil had broken his word. He went out alone accordingly, and on his return informed his patron that he had seen Baron, who was exceedingly angry that they had not waited the proper time ere they looked for the ingots. Baron had also said that the Maréchal de Ray could hardly expect any favours from him at a time when he must know that he had been meditating a pilgrimage to the Holy Land to make atonement for his sins. The Italian had doubtless surmised this from some incautious expression of his patron, for de Ray frankly confessed that there were times when, sick of the world and all its pomps and vanities, he thought of devoting himself to the service of God. In this manner the Italian lured on from month to month his credulous and guilty patron, extracting from him all the valuables he possessed, and only waiting a favourable opportunity to decamp with his plunder. But the day of retribution was at hand for both. Young girls and boys continued to disappear in the most mysterious manner, and the rumours against the owner of Champ Tochet grew so loud and distinct that the church was compelled to interfere. Representations were made by the Bishop of Nantes to the Duke of Brittany that it would be a public scandal if the accusations against the Maréchal de Ray were not inquired into. He was arrested accordingly in his own castle along with his accomplice Prelati, and thrown into a dungeon at Nantes to await his trial. The judges appointed to try him were the Bishop of Nantes, Chancellor of Brittany, the Vicar of the Inquisition in France, and the celebrated Pierre Le Hopital, the President of the Provincial Parliament. The offences laid to his charge were sorcery, sodomy and murder. Gilles, on the first day of his trial, conducted himself with the utmost insolence. He braved the judges on the judgment seat, calling them simoniacs and persons of impure life, and said he would rather be hanged by the neck like a dog without trial than plead either guilty or not guilty before such contemptible miscreants. But his confidence forsook him as the trial proceeded, and he was found guilty on the clearest evidence of all the crimes laid to his charge. It was proved that he took insane pleasure in stabbing the victims of his lust, and in observing the quivering of their flesh and the fading lustre of their eyes as they expired. The confession of Prelati first made the judges acquainted with this horrid madness, and Gilles himself confirmed it before his death. 
nearly a hundred children of the villages around his two castles of Shamtoshay and Mashku, had been missed within three years, the greater part, if not all, of whom were immolated to the lust or the cupidity of this monster. He imagined that he thus made the devil his friend, and that his recompense would be the secret of the philosopher's stone. Gilles and Prelati were both condemned to be burned alive. At the place of execution they assumed the air of penitence and religion. Gilles tenderly embraced Prelati, saying, Farewell, friend Francis. In this world we shall never meet again, but let us place our hopes in God. We shall see each other in paradise. Out of consideration for his high rank and connections, the punishment of the marshal was so far mitigated that he was not burned alive like Prelati. He was first strangled and then thrown into the flames. His body, when half consumed, was given over to his relatives for internment, while that of the Italian was burned to ashes and then scattered to the winds. Note 39. For full details of this extraordinary trial, see Lobonau's Nova History de Breton and D'Argentaire's work on the same subject. The character and life of Gilles de Ray are believed to have suggested the famous Bluebeard of the nursery tale. Jacques Coeur This remarkable pretender to the secret of the Philosopher's Stone was contemporary with the last mentioned. He was a great personage at the court of Charles VII, and in the events of his reign played a prominent part. From a very humble origin, he rose to the highest honours of the state, and amassed enormous wealth by peculation and plunder of the country which he should have served. It was to hide his delinquencies in this respect, and to divert attention from the real source of his riches, that he boasted of having discovered the art of transmuting the inferior metals into gold and silver. His father was a goldsmith in the city of Borges, but so reduced in circumstances towards the latter years of his life that he was unable to pay the necessary fees to procure his son's admission into the guild. Young Jacques became, however, a workman in the royal mint of Borges in 1428, and behaved himself so well and showed so much knowledge of metallurgy that he attained rapid promotion in that establishment. He had also the good fortune to make the acquaintance of the fair Agnes Sorel, by whom he was patronised and much esteemed. Jacques had now three things in his favour, ability, perseverance, and the countenance of the king's mistress. Many a man succeeds with but one of these to help him forward, and it would have been strange indeed if Jacques Coeur, who had them all, should have languished in obscurity. While still a young man, he was made master of the mint, in which he had been a journeyman, and installed at the same time into the vacant office of Grand Treasurer of the Royal Household. He possessed an extensive knowledge of finance, and turned it wonderfully to his own advantage as soon as he became entrusted with extensive funds. He speculated in articles of the first necessity, and made himself popular by buying up grain, honey, wines, and other produce, till there was a scarcity, when he sold it again at enormous profit. Strong in the royal favour, he did not hesitate to oppress the poor by continual acts of forestalling a monopoly. As there is no enemy so bitter as the estranged friend, so of all the torrents and tramplers upon the poor, there is none so fierce and reckless as the upstart that sprang from their ranks. The offensive pride of Jacques Coeur to his inferiors 
was the theme of indignant reproach in his own city, and his cringing humility to those above him was as much an object of contempt to the aristocrats into whose society he thrust himself. But Jacques did not care for the former, and to the latter he was blind. He continued his career till he became the richest man in France, and so useful to the king that no important enterprise was set on foot until he had been consulted. He was sent in 1446 on an embassy to Genoa, and in the following year to Pope Nicholas V. In both these missions he acquitted himself to the satisfaction of his sovereign, and was rewarded with a lucrative appointment, in addition to those which he already held. In the year 1449, the English in Normandy, deprived of their great general, the Duke of Bedford, broke the truce with the French king, and took possession of a small town belonging to the Duke of Brittany. This was the signal for the recommencement of a war, in which the French regained possession of nearly the whole province. The money for this war was advanced, for the most part, by Jacques Coeur. When Rouen yielded to the French, and Charles made his triumphal entry into that city, accompanied by Dunois and his most famous generals, Jacques was among the most brilliant of his cortege. His chariot and horses vied with those of the king in the magnificence of their trappings, and his enemies said of him that he publicly boasted that he alone had driven out the English, and that the valour of the troops would have been nothing without his goal. Dunois appears, also, to have been partly of the same opinion. Without disparaging the courage of the army, he acknowledged the utility of the able financier, by whose means they had been fed and paid, and constantly afforded him his powerful protection. When peace returned, Jacques again devoted himself to commerce, and fitted up several galleys to trade with the Genoese. He also brought large estates in various parts of France, the chief of which were the baronies of Saint-Fagot, Menaton, Solon, Maubranche, Mion, Saint-Gerain-de-Vaux, and Saint-Anne-de-Boussy, the earldoms or counties of La Palace, Champagnel, Beaumont, and villeneuve la gannay and the Marquisate of Toucy. He also procured for his son, Jean Coeur, who had chosen the church for his profession, a post no less distinguished than that of Archbishop of Bourges. Everybody said that so much wealth could not have been honestly acquired, and both rich and poor longed for the day that should humble the pride of the man, whom the one class regarded as an upstart, and the other as an oppressor. Jacques was somewhat alarmed at the rumours that were afloat respecting him, and of dark hints that he had debased the coin of the realm, and forged the king's seal to an important document, by which he had defrauded the state of very considerable sums. To silence these rumours, he invited many alchemists from foreign countries to reside with him, and circulated a counter-rumour that he had discovered the secret of the philosopher's stone. He also built a magnificent house in his native city, over the entrance of which he caused to be sculptured the emblems of that science. Some time afterward he built another, no less splendid, at Montpellier, which he inscribed in a similar manner. He also wrote a treatise upon the hermetic philosophy, in which he pretended that he knew the secret of transmuting metals. But all these attempts to disguise his numerous acts of peculation proved unavailing, and he was arrested in 1452, and brought to trial on several charges. Upon one only, which the malice of his enemies invented to ruin him, was he acquitted, 
which was that he had been accessory to the death by poison of his kind patroness, Agnes Sorel. Upon the others he was found guilty, and sentenced to be banished the kingdom, and to pay the enormous fine of four hundred thousand crowns. It was proved that he had forged the king's seal, that in his capacity of master of the mint of Borges, he had debased, to a very great extent, the gold and silver coin of the realm, and that he had not hesitated to supply the Turks with arms and money to enable them to carry on war against their Christian neighbours, for which service he had received the most magnificent recompenses. Charles the Seventh was deeply grieved at his condemnation, and believed to the last that he was innocent. By his means the fine was reduced, within a sum which Jacques Kerr could pay. After remaining for some time in prison, he was liberated and left France with a large sum of money, part of which, it was alleged, was secretly paid him by Charles out of the produce of his confiscated estates. He retired to Cyprus, where he died about 1460, the richest and most conspicuous personage of the island. The writers upon alchemy all claim Jacques Coeur as a member of their fraternity, and treat as false and libelous the more rational explanation of his wealth, which the records of his trial afford. Pierre Borel, in his Antiquities Goliosses, maintains the opinion that Jacques was an honest man, and that he made his gold out of lead and copper, by means of the philosopher's stone. The alchemic adepts in general were of the same opinion but they found it difficult to persuade even his contemporaries of the fact. Posterity is still less likely to believe it. End of chapter 4, part 4